Now, a few years ago, um, Sir David Attenborough warned us that the moment of crisis has come. He said, as I speak, Southeast Australia is on fire. Why the temperatures of the earth are increasing, he said. David Attenborough joins many people who are genuinely, genuinely concerned about the state of the world. They are genuinely worried about the environment. They are genuinely worried about the political order. They are genuinely worried about the social disorder in the world. This weekend, uh, Extinction Rebellion have been protesting in central London uh, about the, the so-called climate crisis, as they would see it. Uh, they, want us, they want us to save the world from us. Now, the environmental problem, real or imagined, I'm not a scientist, so I'll leave that aside. Real or imagined are, of course, just one. One of many issues that are troubling people at the moment in the world. Peoples and nations. There's an economic crisis, isn't there? Food prices in the UK are now at a record high. A record 45-year high. Living standards, I saw a report on Euronews. Uh, living standards across the Western world are falling rapidly, especially in Europe. There is, of course, a political crisis as well. Confidence in politics is at an all-time low. The global geopolitical order is disintegrating. There are wars raging all around the globe. And, of course, we are experiencing a war in Europe which we haven't experienced for decades. There's an economic crisis, a political crisis, and of course there's a social crisis as well. Communities are now increasingly divided across all kinds of groupings. Loneliness is sky high, especially in the Western world. Mental health has never been worse. There is also a technological crisis, isn't there? The rise of new technologies are disrupting all areas of life, including reconfiguring the very nature of what it means to be human. There is, of course, which I spoke about last week, a moral and spiritual crisis, especially in our nation. People in our society no longer have a grip on reality. People no longer know their right from their left. Areas of life which we thought were settled, like what is a woman, are now under debate. We are living in a society that with each passing day, is breaking new records in human rebellion and chaos, in defiance against the Lord God Almighty. And as a result of these crises, I think, in a simple sentence, as we all look around, it's beginning to dawn on us that the world is clearly going mad, isn't it? The world has gone mad. That's the phrase I keep hearing. Now, the crises of life, of course, are not just out there, right? On top of the chaos and gloom in the world in general, we are also grappling with personal battles, all of us. At this moment, as we sit here this morning, someone in Bexley Heath is probably waking up with an illness with no medical cure. And she feels helpless about our future. Another person is probably making a cup of tea and fighting back tears in a, in, in a losing battle against depression. 
and a dark cloud hangs over that person's life. Someone probably has woken up with a secret addiction to painkillers. She knows it's destroying her, but is powerless to stop it because she needs them just to get through the pressures of life. Another person right now probably is struggling with a bullying boss at work and doesn't know what to do. My point is the crises are not just out there. Life is full of crises, individual crises, that makes us feel empty or joyless. How should we live in a world that has gone mad, not just out there, but frankly in our own lives as well? How do we live in a joyless world? A world that every day that passes seems to offer increasing challenges. I think the answer is actually in Psalm 14. It's probably not a psalm that you turn to for that answer. If you think of the psalms, you probably think it's Psalm 23. I spent this whole past week studying Psalm 46. And in fact, I was planning to preach on that this morning. Because that's what I've been thinking about. Um, That's a different story where we're looking at Psalm 14. That that is the Psalm you turn to, isn't it? To answer this question. God is our refuge and our strength. But I thought, let's look at actually Psalm 14. Because I think this Psalm answers our question. This Psalm was written by the second king of Israel, King David, who lived around... 3,000 years ago, just as the psalm we looked at last week, Psalm 12. And it was written, I think probably around the same time as Psalm 12, at a time when David looked around the world and saw many, many challenges. People had rebelled against the one true God of the Bible. They were full of hatred against God. They not only hated God, they hated his people as well. In fact, verse 5 summarizes that, isn't it? They were, they, 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 verse 4, have they no knowledge of the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the, the Lord. That's a, that's a world in which David was living in, a world in which he looked around and he saw, as we said last week, that evil seemed to be winning. And of course, we know David himself experienced many challenges in his life. And so David, like us, had every reason to feel negative about his life. But as we look at this Psalm 14, and as we come to the end of the Psalm, look at verse 7, we see that instead of David, as he reflects on these crises in the world, it doesn't end um, glooming. Quite the opposite. He ends by calling on God's people to rejoice. Look at verse 7. All that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. David is saying, I have discovered that no matter how gloomy the world is, no matter how bleak my circumstances are, I have every reason to rejoice in a gloomy world. And he's saying to us, and if you truly know the God of Israel, you too must live with joy in your difficult situation. God wants you to live with joy in a world gone mad. How do we do that? How can David make such a claim? Well, verse 1 to 6, verse 1 to 7 really, is the basis for that last sentence in in this psalm. He gives us in this, I think, two reasons 
why every true follower of Christ has every reason to live with joy no matter what situation you are facing this morning. No matter how bleak your circumstances. I don't know the details of what you may be going through, but we are all going through it, aren't we, in in some sense, because we are living in this world of chaos. And here it gives us two reasons why you and I can rejoice in the world of chaos. First reason in your heart, we must rejoice because sinners will ultimately lose. We can rejoice because there is a day coming when sin and sinners will be ultimately defeated. The world, you see, is blooming because it is the world that our sin has meant. It is not the world as God created. Sin has entered the world. We have all rebelled against God. And never since sin entered the world, suffering followed behind. We have declared independence (coughs) from God. Look at this one to three. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In 1977, around 100 squatters uh, in Freston Road, Notting Hill, declared independence from the United Kingdom. They decided to declare independence because the GLC said it was going to evict them. And this group of 100 squatters included actors, <coughs> artists, and normal working class Londoner, and of course, a few addicts. And this group lobbied the United Nations and established what was called the Free and Independent Republic of Frestonia. They are their own postage stamps, visas, and passports. They even appointed the playwright Ifcott Williams as ambassador to Great Britain. But they also had a two-year-old, right? Francesco Bogina Bromley as their minister for education. But, but they were, at one level, serious. They wanted independence for the United Kingdom. And of course, in recent time, we've seen in the US, Charles, for example, also wanted to, to have its own, if you like, area of influence and, uh, and independence from the US. Um, they saw themselves as seeking to achieve. What David is saying, human beings are worse than the Frestonians or those who set up Charles in the US. Humanity has not just rebelled against the supreme authority. Our human rebellion against God has left every single human being deformed or corrupt. All human beings are corrupt in their hearts. They are born corrupt in their hearts. They do not think right thoughts of God. We don't recognize God as we should recognize him. In fact, we are all by sinners by nature, I should say, foolish. That's one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
David is saying, this is what is fundamentally wrong with the world. Because we have rejected God, all our thinking has become completely unreliable, foolish. Your thinking is foolish not because you have an IQ problem. It is that you do not have the wisdom of God. You do not have the capacity to see life as God sees it. Your heart is naturally vile, says David. It is untrustworthy as a guide. You cannot depend on your thinking, on your mind, or your heart. Its spiritual software is completely corroded. The fool, therefore, then says, in his heart, there is no God. It's important that we understand that even when we intellectually agree that God is real, that God exists, the natural bent of our hearts is sinful. Our very heart loves the things God hates. So you may believe in God, but if if your heart is bent towards evil, well, you are living as an atheist. And David is saying this is the natural bent of every single human being. This is how we are born. We are not just corrupt in our thinking, we are corrupt in how we act. Read on, verse 1. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good, says David. David is saying the way we all live is abominable. It dishonors God. You are not a good person. In fact, says David, you are an abominable person in the sight of God. Because human beings, you see, don't just sin actively against God. Even the so-called good things sinners do are abominable before God. Why? Because they come from a heart that is corrupt. Good deeds by a sinner are like a cake covered in poison. It looks good on the outside, but it is covered in sin. You see, human beings are not just corrupt in thought and deed. Their entire nature has totally turned against God. We are not able to truly seek after God. Look at verse 23. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none, David repeats, who does good. In case you are in doubt, he says, not even you. Not even one. The picture David paints here is that all human beings by nature are rebels against God to the core of our being. Our minds, our desires, our actions is depraved. Totally depraved. But it is much worse than that, you see. Sin hasn't just ruined us. Sin has ruined our relationships with each other. Look at verse 4. Have they no knowledge of the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? That's the question. David is saying, sin in us has put us at each other's throats. Where sin abounds, there can be no true love for others. Because, you see, sin turns us into a broken society where neighbor fights against neighbor. Why do you struggle with people? Because of sin. What is the source of our problems in this world? Because of sin. There is sin in them, there is sin in you. We are all sinners. And the result of that is that our relationships are mired in sin. As Emily Dickinson once said, 
the soul selects our own society, then shuts the door. A sinful soul, we should add. Sin ruins our society. And the evidence is all around us, isn't it? I mean, honestly, just after this, look up the BBC website, pick up a few headlines there, and you have the evidence of your depravity in society. Go to the new shopper, pick it up, get a copy. If it's been put through your door, open it. On the front pages there, you see evidence in your society of sin. Look at your family, you see evidence of it. Look at places of work, you see evidence of it. Look in your own hands, which you're afraid to do, you see infinite evidence of it. Why are we sinners? All of this goes back to the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? When sin entered our world, we are all under the curse of sin. In fact, Paul writing in Romans 3, verse 9 to 10, quotes this passage, and he applies it to everyone. Jews and Greeks. That's everyone, in Pauline way of speaking. But the good news is that David here is clear that sin is not the last word. Because you see, God has set aside a day when we will punish all who live in sin. All sinners will ultimately lose. Look at verse 4 to 5. Have they no knowledge or the evildoers who eat at my people? As they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord to cause so much harm to the people of God, David says. And then listen to verse 5. There they are in great terror. Present tense. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You know, when the residents of Freston Road rebelled, there was great goodwill expressed towards them. The shadow chancellor of the exchequer at the time, Sir Geoffrey R., in fact told them, and I quote, I can hardly fail to be moved by your aspirations. That's like... um, uh, I don't know the lady who's, who's, in, who's, who's, in, who's, who's the shadow chancellor at the moment, but that would be the equivalent of Keir Starmer, say, you know, his deputy, saying, you're doing the right thing. I'm really interested. This is really good, right? But you see, in the end, the Frestonians were evicted, and there is no republic of Frestonia. It has been consigned to history. And in the same way, if a human government can do that, if a human government won't tolerate opposition, what more God? God is giving us a cast iron guarantee in this psalm that one day all sinners will lose because God will completely defeat them. They are in great terror, says God, for God is with the generation of the righteous. That is to say, God is only going to be with us. God is only going to spare those who have repented of their sin and trusted in him. And we know through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is only with those whom he declares right before him. And he equips them to obey his law. You see, the delusion of sin is that we believe we control how the story of our life ends. And that's the amazing thing. You know, when you're young, you've got your whole world in front of you. You think every single thing you're doing, you're writing your own story. And at school, they're telling you, you can be anything you ever wanted. And we tell our children that. You can write your own story. You control how it ends. But the Bible is saying, no. You don't control anything. You don't write your own story. 
you know, the early church fathers, the African church father, Augustine of Hippo, said this, sin, what is sin? If you asked Augustine, what is sin? Augustine would say, sin is believing the lie that you are self-created, self-dependent, and self-sustained. Sin is believing the lie that you are self-created, that you made yourself, that you are self-dependent, you don't need anyone, and that you are self-sustained, that you are keeping yourself in life. That is sin. You don't write your own story, Augustine is saying. You see, sinners forget that there is a God in heaven who watches over all things. Sinners forget there is a final judge. Sinners forget that there is a real hell and there is a real heaven. And that all sinners are will depart and go into the lake of fire as we read in Revelation 21. Sinners forget that. Sinners forget there is a final judgment waiting for everyone. They forget that there is a time coming when sinners will lose. But David is saying, to those of us who truly belong to God, to those sinners who know they are sinners and they have repented of their sin and they are trusting in the God of Israel, to those who have been declared righteous before God by the true King of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, to all who belong to the generation of the righteous, King David says this to us, do not forget that sinners will ultimately lose. That's his point. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. You know, the key to being joyful in a gloomy world is to focus on the big picture. Esaph forgot that. In his famous song, Esaph forgot that. He looked at the prosperity of the wicked and he was much discouraged. David here in this psalm, he said, no, no, no. don't look at the prosperity of the wicked. Those people will ultimately lose. Don't try and be like them. Their fate is destruction. And now I wish many of our young people here especially would hear that now. You know, I've been thinking about this today recently. I've, I've, just, it's a random thought I'm having at the moment. I was watching my daughter Abigail recently, <coughs> actually observing her for the last couple of days. And there are things that she's really interested in, right? And uh, there are things that she was really interested in that I can see now she's losing interest in them. She's now interested in new things. You know, she's, she's, she's enjoying new things. Because she's realizing that the thing she once thought was important is less important. And you know, that's actually the interesting thing about life as I've been thinking about it. As I've been reflecting on my own life this past week, when you have a cold, you just sit there and you just, you can be grumpy, but you reflect a lot, you know, that's, that's, that's God that helps us to do that. I've been thinking, you know, there are things I wished I had done differently when I was at university. I was thinking about that. Different priorities. Things that I look about now, I'm thinking, that's not, that wasn't very important. I could have spent my time better. And I'm sure, I've spoken to some of you, you've had some thoughts. There are things I'm thinking five years ago were important, but they're not important. I should have done differently. Five years ago. And dare I even say, two years ago. Interests, hobbies, focus, things I focused on. That two years from now, right now, looking back two years, I'm thinking, no, I need to be thinking differently. And so I've been asking myself this thought. All of yesterday, I was thinking, 
what am I going to be thinking 10 years from now, 15 years from now, that I wished I would be doing differently? How would I get an answer to that? It's just a thought in my head. Now, the reason I'm sharing that, I think it's a good thought experiment to think about. Because you're gonna, your long-term priorities are important. Uh, you can ask me the answer I've got to about how to answer that question. But here's the thing. I would have loved to have had people be honest with me and say the priorities you've got now, and maybe they were, are not the right priorities. This must be your priority because 10, 20, 30 years from now, you look back and say, this should have been my priority. Where am I going with that? I'm looking at many of us, particularly those of us who are not serious about God. You've heard the gospel preached to you. I am utterly convinced by speaking to elderly people, you can have a child, Brother Michael, and others, they will remind you that they wish they were more holy. They wish they had uh, leveled with God early in life. They wish the priorities they had were Christ-centered priorities. They wished all their relationships were shaped by the gospel. They wish that they were gospel people. And I just said to some of us here that are not complete, that we're not serious about God at all. We hear the word of God preached. We are not focused on him at all. We are wasting our lives. Because God is with the generation of the righteous. Don't wait until you're 20, 30, 40. That's too late. Get right with God now. Start serving him now. Don't believe yourself sustained. Because in the end, sinners will lose. And so get your priorities. Think of what you're likely to want when you're older. Work backwards, and you're going to recognize being right with God now is the key. David is saying, do not forget that sinners will ultimately lose. And therefore he's saying to us who trust in God, beloved, the key to being joyful in a gloomy world is not to focus on the now, Focus on the big picture. Focus on this truth that in the end, sinners will lose. Focus on this picture that there will be a day of justice coming. That God is not planning to sweep sin under the carpet. Evildoers will be punished and we shouldn't want to follow them. Focus on this, that God will ensure that all sins against him are punished. That he will ensure that all sins that have been committed against his people are punished. And so if you are truly part of God's people in Jesus Christ, you have every reason to rejoice. No matter how much you've suffered, there is a day of justice. You can rejoice in the face of difficult experiences. You can rejoice knowing that no matter what the world is offering right now, in the end, there's a final day of accountability. Sinners will ultimately lose. That's the first way we live with joy in a world gone mad. We know that those who oppose God and his people who ultimately lose. And as we focus on that big picture, we hate sin and we commit everything else that's going on with us into the hands of God who is full of justice and strength. The second, and I'll be quick, the second way we rejoice is that second reason. We must rejoice because God's people will ultimately win. First point is that sinners will ultimately lose. The second reason for rejoicing is that God's people will ultimately win. You may remember the famous campaign slogan of Donald Trump. Make America great again, isn't it? 
But it's only famous because of another less well-known slogan of Donald Trump, which he liked to use quite often. And the slogan was a negative one, which was, America does not win anymore. Right? So every time you speak, we hand on that. America doesn't win anymore. And of course, that made people start chanting, you, Donald Trump, make America great again. You see how the two sit together, right? He tells them, we're not winning. And they say, you are the answer, right? All of us hate losing, don't we? We hate losing. You hate coming at the end of an argument. You, you want to walk away from it. Like, yeah, I've got everybody in the, in the classroom, really in their place there. I've won. We want winning. We want to be winners, right? We want to be on the winning end of life. Now, King David has every reason to feel like Israel was constantly on the losing end of life. Because ever since they entered the land of Canaan, they were locked in constant battles against the Philistines, constant battles against other the nations that were around them, Edom and Syria, all these empires. All the enemies of God seems just to give them a lot of stress. And as David looked at these people, yes, he's won many battles, but he longs for God's ultimate rescue. So that's how he ends. Look at verse 7. David says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, he says. He's saying, How I wish would be a nation of winners again. <laughs> right? That would be nice, he says. But notice immediately, he tells us that's not wishful thinking. He says that this will happen when God makes Israel great again. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Notice the, the key word there is when. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. David is confident that Israel will be great again. He agrees with all the prophets that God will bring, not just great again, but unprecedented glory. We looked at that passage in, um, in Nahum chapter 2. Uh, verse 2, in one of our Bible studies, it says this, The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So throughout the testimony of Scripture is that God is restoring his people. How will God bless his people? Well, by doing a great work of salvation. That's what verse 7 is getting at. Notice what he says. All that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Notice that. It is out of Zion that God will do this great work. Not into Zion, but a deliverer shall arise out of Zion. God will send a new greater king, a new greater David to fulfill God's promises. That's why he's getting at. David himself had longed for that. Look at Psalm 2 verse 6. He makes that point, doesn't he? I have installed, God is declaring through David, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The longing for a greater king out of Zion. Well, we know as we read the New Testament that the coming of Jesus is a fulfillment of the true king. He is the true king of Zion. John 1 verse 49, Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus, through his perfect life, transferred, transfers his perfect moral record to all who believe in him. 
Jesus through his death grants forgiveness of sins to all who draw near to him. Jesus through his resurrection gives life to all who trust in him. Jesus through his Pentecost sends the spirit to live inside every new person who has experienced new birth. If you are in Jesus, you are no longer alone. And so Jesus now has made you part of his people and the Lord Jesus is now tirelessly the the king of Israel. is working to create a new future for all who belong to him. He will appear any moment to create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We read about that in Revelation 21. Therefore, all who truly believe and trust in Jesus will ultimately win because Christ has already won for us on the cross. No wonder David can't contain himself. Look at verse 7 again. All that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. He says, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. You know, you can picture David with his tambourine, isn't it? As he's, as, as, as he's, as, as he's singing out uh, verse 7. We can see him dancing. He's rejoicing because he's calling on people to rejoice. He's rejoicing that in the end, all who belong to God will ultimately win. And he wants others to join him in celebrating that. He wants us to live with this sense that the future is already written. All true followers of Jesus can live with joy in a world gone mad because no matter what you're going through this morning, no matter what is on your plate, God has already won for you through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the church should be the most joyful community on earth. There should be a deep and, and, and a constant flow of delight and joy in everything we do. Each of us who are true followers of Christ should carry around us a display of our joy, regardless of the situation we are in, because we are on the winning side. As I've always said, if you can tell in the stadium which team is winning, they're losing. By the singing, of course, but just the happiness they display. It's the same thing in the world. The world should look at us and say, yeah, they are on the winning side. Not simply because we're smiling, I mean, that's the external. But there is this sense of peace and joy that comes from God in the middle of affliction. The people we love around us who do not know Jesus should say, there's something different about dad. There's something different about mommy. There's something different about my wife. She has this joy that comes from the Holy Ghost in the middle of chaos. Does she weep? Yes, she weeps. But even in her weeping, she doesn't weep like the one who has no hope. You know, there's something wrong if you belong to God and we're not growing in this fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of joy from knowing. Not because we are happy with the circumstances, but we know that We are children of God. We are not suffering. We are not facing challenges like the world. The joy that comes from knowing that the almighty God has saved me from sin. That I was once a rebel and under his wrath and judgment. But God in Christ came to me without one way love of his. He saved me not because of deeds done by me but by his grace and his grace alone. He restored me back to him. I am now counted among the true Israel of God. 
and I have a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. You know, if a lottery winner walked in here, would notice it. With a billion, they're about to collect tomorrow. Would notice it. We have in Christ infinite riches far greater than earthly things. And that should be reflected in how we live, how we talk, even how we talk about challenges in our own life. We don't talk about them with despair. We are hopeful people. We know our king is the king of the universe. Even in the middle of great affliction. How can we not rejoice? We must rejoice no matter the situation. And this is when we go through the hymns, we pick this up. We sing hymns because we see this preached to us, isn't it? I think of one hymn writer who says, I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of him all day long, she says. I sing, for I cannot be silent, she says. His love is the theme of my song. And then she breaks into a chorus, doesn't she? Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, his child and forever I am. You know, sadly, many followers of Jesus have what poor David Tripp calls a miserable faith. Instead of rejoicing, they have a miserable faith. They're enduring in Christ, but it is not joyful endurance. Why is that? I think the reason for that is that they are quietly disappointed with God. They feel God has not given them the life he has promised. They look at the world and they feel obeying the Bible means we miss out on a whole lot of good things. They forget that sinners are on the losing end. And so these people live with little compromises here, little compromises there. They are chasing the same thing as the world is chasing. They attend church, but not with joy of being gathered with the people of God. They would rather not be here. If they are here, they are completely sad, as if there's a gun put to their head to be here. They give to the Lord's work, but they do it kicking and screaming. Because they are disappointed with God. They cannot endure sharing the gospel with others. There is no intentionality to make Christ known. They can't remember the last time they told, they told someone about Jesus. But of course, how can you tell anyone about somebody you are not excited about? You can't. It's impossible. And so they are consumed with finding ways to escape life. Busyness. Laziness. Social media addiction. Pornography. Alcohol. And of course, envy of others. Because they are disappointed with God, they lack a passion for reading the word of God. It's too much just to read it twice a week. So they hardly even do that. They don't pray. They don't spend time in fellowship with other believers. And as a result, their life has become mired in sin and joylessness. They're not able to resist the gloom of the world. They're not able to resist the gloom engulfing the world. And of course, they're not able to withstand the pressures in their own life. Are they converted? They're still converted, but they have not understood who they are in Christ. And perhaps it's the fault of the church that he hasn't taught them adequately. The blame is always shared. But David says it doesn't have to be that way. As followers of Jesus, we are not defined by our situations. We are defined by our relationship with Jesus. Whatever is going on in life, if you are a true follower of Christ, you have every reason to celebrate, David is saying. In the gloomy, there is joy in the gloomy world. For two reasons. Keep your focus on these two reasons. 
sinners who out make lose. God's people who ultimately win. We have a great future in Christ. And this evening, I'll share more with you about this amazing, wonderful, super-duper future. We won't touch the surface on it. That we have in Jesus. As we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 11.